You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARKU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. For me personally, you know, uh, it's it hasn't always been easy. Being a woman leader in technology, as and especially in, in the public sector, has not always been walk in the garden. But you know what, Brian? I, I don't know if you've noticed, but the landscape has dramatically changed for women in public sector over, I would say, the past five to eight years, where you see women CEOs of large defense contracting firms. That's amazing. Now, I would have never expected that 20 years ago. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. We're coming up on two years where we've been in a pandemic state. And while COVID-19 has brought significant lasting challenges to private and public sector organizations alike, as well as individuals personally, it shined a bright light on the impact of all the related technological issues that have been going on from digital transformation to cybersecurity and a whole lot more. It was a pretty radical blow to the status quo, changing everything from the way people work to the way government provides essential services to citizens like myself. We don't know yet what 2022 is going to bring, but we can be sure that the upheaval of 2020 and 2021 is still a significant driver of both challenge, but also innovation. One of the things I've tried to be more intentional about this year is bringing on guests that have a lot of experience in, let's just call it pre-pandemic times. And on the other side of that, have also done a great job of making adjustments in the thick of it to not only maintain what they have going on, but to also really thrive. And today's guest definitely fits that description. Clara Conti is the vice president and general manager of Red Hat's public sector business. Before joining Red Hat in the middle of last year, she led the strategy, business operations, and formation of Presidio Federal. As a former CEO of several companies, she has nearly 30 years leading entrepreneurial startups, midsize and global companies, to substantial market growth. She came to Presidio Federal following her executive role within IBM's Global Business Service for Public Sector and really has considerable experience in in some of the things we're going to talk about today. She's going to share a little bit about some of the lessons that she learned during the pandemic, but we're also going to concentrate on what she sees for the road ahead, which I'm excited to talk about. Clara, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I love talking to leaders like yourself who have experience in in what I call it the kind of the pre-pandemic state, but have been able to be so successful in navigating the new normal, getting kind of their their feet under them and really trying to to drive things forward. 
I would love to ask you as we start off, what are some of the biggest things that you've learned throughout the pandemic and, and how you've navigated the new normal? I know, and it's been quite a journey, hasn't it, for the past two and a half years? Uh, who would have thought that this would be normal and this would be our lives every day? It's certainly, I thought maybe going, I don't know, maybe two or three months into the pandemic and it'll be wrapped up by the end of the summer. And here we are two years into it, uh, leading, running organizations virtually, uh, onboarding folks virtually, uh, meeting customers virtually, and who knew that this was going to be our lives two uh, two years ago? Um, I think as organizations, we're we're all learning how to navigate uh, this new normal uh, and learning how to reach our customers in a virtual way and have uh, meaningful conversations and collaborations together. What's it been like not being able to? go and meet people face to face as a, especially as a, a sales leader. I think a lot mm -hmm. of sales leaders really rely on the, the ability to go shake hands, look people in the eye, really establish a connection with their customers, with their prospects. And when you shift that into zoom or, mm -hmm. or teams that really changes the dynamic. What has that been like for you? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I am uh, a hundred percent extrovert, so it's been <laughs> excruciating for me uh, not being able to travel, and in some in some instances, not being able to meet some of my customers face to face. Uh, as an organization, um, it, it's uh, given us a step back and to take a look at, you know, what does that online engagement look like? How do we keep that client intimacy? digitally and what do we need to do as an organization to support that so you know a lot of companies got on board with the, the video conferencing and tools like that we wanted to take things a step further to make sure that we had you know the professional tools and resources needed um, uh, to keep that digital engagement going with our customers and to be able to build our social presence online as well uh, but again, it's uh, been quite a journey the past two years, learning and evolving uh, with this new normal. And I think it's going to be a very big part of our future moving ahead. You know, we have some government agencies that are going 100% remote. So the question that you're ha you have to ask your sales force is, how are you going to develop that client intimacy uh, to customers that you may never have that opportunity or very limited opportunity to meet with them face to face. How are they going to know about you? How are they going to know about your company, your offerings, your value proposition? How are they going to understand that you empathize with them and their requirements? And how are you going to fulfill uh, the work once you win it uh, virtually? So all of that is, you know, our new great horizon moving forward. I'm excited about it. Um, uh, I think it's also been a great equalizer for a lot of companies. And let me give you an example. I was thinking about it the other day. You know, um, years ago, I had my own very small business government contracting firm, and I didn't have the resources to uh, go and visit every customer or get on a plane or go to a lot of conferences. Um, and with this now digital selling and digital marketing component that we all must deal with, that's a great equalizer. That, think about it. If you're a small business in government contracting right now, you know you can go and have those one-on-ones with a customer across the country, face to face, over the over video, um, and 
And now you don't have that huge expense that you would have had before. Um, so I think there's a, a really uh, great equalization that is happening now. And the companies that understand digital engagement are going to be the winners. I think you're so right. And it's it's really a scaling agent too for folks like yourself where you might have to, if you dedicated a, a day to go downtown and, and have a conversation with one or two customers, now you can dedicate a couple days and, and meet with 20 or 30 potential customers because you're removing the the travel restrictions and all of those pieces into it. So it, it's I think it supported small, large, everybody in between, um, which I know I've appreciated because it's allowed me now to to meet with more customers everywhere around the world um, instead of, like you said, getting on a plane. And right. you, you used a, a word in there, empathize. And I want to I want to pull that out real quick because back in December, there was a new customer experience executive order from uh, the Biden administration. And one of the things within that I- executive order, they really were getting to the heart of the government providing empathetic experiences. Obviously, digitizing the experiences is is priority 1A and making sure they're, they're accessible, but uh, empathetic at the same time. They want to make sure that th- they're meeting people where they are in a way they need to, need, need to be engaged with. Um, so really want to get your thoughts on mm-hmm. um, kind of takeaways from that executive order, especially mm-hmm. since you you have so much experience in government. You've seen transitions over the years um, mm-hmm. around priorities like this. What were some of your takeaways from that EO? Yeah, yeah and great question. You know, I was thinking about, you know, we, we have all seen this and experienced this ourselves, right, in the past two years where... Everyone is now on a, on a conference call, but some people have better interconn- internet connections than others, right? And, uh, and, and their experience is completely different or they're limited. Or maybe uh, we have uh, family members with children that are having to study now online and the right resources aren't there, the right interaction isn't there, uh, and there isn't really the, you know, the technology support for that. So all of this has really come into the light in the past two years in a personal way. And now you look at it from the, the federal side of things and the agencies, and those agencies have customers, the U.S. citizens, and they have the same kind of requirements that we all have in our personal lives with our, we're either with our children at school or with our work situations. And that is, you know, that great equalization that, that has to happen, right? Where the federal agencies are now providing services digitally that, that are inclusive, that actually do support, um, that user experience for all U.S. citizens, right? Um, so I think a lot of this is like we're in a very, very exciting time in IT transformation and what's happening with all of our federal agencies. All of this to me is um, just uh, just a, a wealth of excitement coming forward here simply because of the types of things that we can now offer U.S. citizens. I read an article actually this morning. Um, there was a white paper put out by uh, the government in the United Kingdom that really looked to... Um, invest into wide range broadband technology, moving it to 5G. And uh, one of the biggest reasons was equity. And they, when they did research, they found that the wealth gap really grew the further away from 
geographically the bottom right, but essentially London. The, the further away from London you got within the UK, there was a larger and larger wealth gap. And to, to support kind of trying to shrink that gap and give more accessibility to, to services, but also just broadband internet, um, they're, they're investing uh, around the country to do this. And I think it's, it's really interesting that now government is taking um, a much deeper look at uh, equity, obviously, but also accessibility. Because even, even in the United States during the pandemic, there were a lot of rural areas that didn't have access to Wi-Fi. You saw people mm-hmm. driving school buses out into rural counties and using hotspots, which is, to me, crazy when in, uh, in a very developed country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think equity is certainly a, a driver that we've seen uh, around digital transformation in government. Are there other drivers that, that you've seen, obviously? Oh, yes. Either pandemic catalyzed or not? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, it's funny. You, you talk about people driving out for Wi-Fi. I've had employees do the same thing where they're having, because they live uh, like probably in the Western part of uh, Virginia, Northern Virginia, mm-hmm. that they're going, that they have to simply drive to a coffee shop or a gym. And this is during the pandemic, right? In order for them to be online and doing their work. But if, on a very personal note, you know, I have a, a sister-in-law that teaches in the inner cities in Providence, Rhode Island. And, you know, the, the demographics there, very, very poor. Uh, and when the pandemic happened, those children were lost because not only did they not have internet connection, they didn't have computers. And uh, my sister-in-law was mailing worksheets home to these children in the inner cities. And uh, imagine that. So there's so much more work that we can do here in terms of, you know, me, uh, the, you, you talk about accelerating the technology and, and engagement moving forward. There's so much more work that we can do uh, within the federal agencies and reaching our citizens and making sure that they also have that that same type of experience that we all have. What are some of the things that you guys are doing at Red Hat to support agencies that are looking to transform? Obviously, there's drivers, but at the end of the day, it it ultimately is going to be with the support of the private sector that government can can digitally transform. So at Red Hat, what are some of the things that you guys are doing to support that evolution? Well, you know, uh, and you've know the history of Red Hat and public sector. I mean, we've had phenomenal success throughout the public sector. Well, well known uh, as a company uh, and well known for our open technology. Um, I think, you know, moving forward with uh, Red Hat and, and moving to the cloud, what we offer um, is we offer all agencies that ability to uh, steer clear of vendor lock-in. You know, uh, and and you hear that expression a lot. And I got to tell you, Brian, every time I hear that expression, my skin crawls because would you ever put up with vendor lock-in in in your personal life? (laughs) I mean, think about it, right? The American consumer wants that, you know, that ability to go and pick and choose what they want, when they want it, from wherever they want to buy it. And uh, so... We want to be able to make sure that our agencies are the same way. We want to make sure that they have that ability to steer clear of vendor lock-in. And, and we do that with our offerings, right? And our open source technology. We have that platform for them so they can move between different cloud um, offerings and be able to put and move those applications uh, when they need to. To me, it's so important, especially in this day and age, to to not be locked into something because technologies have become 
so disruptive. And, and I mean that in the best way possible. And I think government's finally at a point where they're not obviously as agile as the private sector, but they're trying to be. I think mm-hmm. they're trying to be more intentional about taking a look at procurement and finding uh, new and unique ways of enveloping some of this technology into their ecosystem to be able to to be more innovative mm-hmm. in what they're doing, which I think is really important, especially um, the shift around, uh, around more strategic digital transformation, um, getting away from kind of mm-hmm. that, that simple technology f- for technology swap and really being mm-hmm more intentional around the type of use cases they're they're leveraging it for. So I think as they evolve, it's so important for them to be able to have those choices and make those decisions. Mm-hmm. When you take a look at other trends beyond just kind of that shift, shift around digital transformation, what are some other things you're seeing in the federal space uh, beyond just... Uh, digital transformation. We've seen some vendor consolidation, I think, a little Mm -hmm. bit, but what are some other things that that you're seeing as well? Mm -hmm. Well, certainly, you know, the the emphasis on the consumption model moving forward, right, and the ability to control your spend, um, that, you know, that's one of the big areas that uh, I personally have been taking a look at. Um, What I, you know, I'm new to Red Hat, so I've I've always been aware of, you know, Red Hat's offerings and open source et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't until I joined here that I got a really deep appreciation for what it means to lead the world in open source technology and, and understanding a little bit about how all of that happens and how it all evolved here at Red Hat is com- amazing to me that when you think about it, it's almost like the world's brain trust on innovation right? That's the open source community. And, you know, we've been a part of that now for 20 plus years. And the, the fact that we have been able to, you know, scan the horizon in this brain trust and pull in those technologies that we know uh, will help propel our customers forward and, you know, kind of harden them the way they need to be hardened and, and keep that innovation going to me is very, very exciting. And to be able to offer that to the federal government and say, look, this is the world's brain trust on innovation, and you're getting this. You're getting this from Red Hat. It, to me, is very, very exciting and something that we have seen agencies embrace, uh, and they understand that, hey, there's not going to be vendor lock-in here, and I'm getting the best of what the world is producing right now. Yeah, I, I love being able to tap into that mind share. It's like your own kind of diversity of thought incubator, mm-hmm. right? Right. You, you mentioned consumption, um, and obviously one of the biggest trends that that we've seen moving the federal government forward, or I mean, not frankly, government at at all levels around the world, is cloud. It's yes. it's that shift to cloud, how they're doing it, how quickly, or or in some cases, how how slowly they're doing it. But what are your thoughts on the way the the federal government, in particular, is is shifting to the cloud? Do you think do you think they've They've done a good job ad- adapting and, and kind of pulling things in. I think we've seen some pockets of innovation around cloud. I think mm-hmm. some areas have been a little slower to adopt. But overall, what are your thoughts there? Mm. Well, I mean, right. This is the this is like the great the great future for all of us, right? And the great and, and the and like the great spot for us for innovation. You know, I would say like we're probably like what phase two of of 
uh, cloud and moving to the cloud. Um, we, we certainly have the, the hyperscalers that are out there uh, with their offerings. And, and now we're taking a look at, okay, how do we migrate these applications to the cloud? What's the smart way to do this? Um, and what's, what's a, a process moving forward that gives us the best options? for us as, a, as an agency and can deliver those applications that are needed, not only for the agency support, but for the U.S. citizens as well. Um, I think we're in a really, really exciting time. Uh, there's you know, so many great companies and technology uh, organizations out there that have offerings that are now ready to sell them into the marketplaces. Um, and uh, I think we're just at the, at the very beginning of this next wave of innovation in the cloud. And to me, I think the next five to 10 years are going to be very, very exciting for all of us. What are your thoughts around the evolution of, of the FedRAMP program? Uh, you, I mean, you've obviously been in, in government for a while, so you were here uh, it, when it was first formed, and you've seen kind of the, the, the adaptation um, that's been made over the past mm -hmm. uh, decade plus around this program, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's a little bit of a, a two-sided coin, right? I think it has done immense work and, and it, it's helped governments get past some of the security mm -hmm. uh, issues mm -hmm. that were inhibiting cloud adoption, in my opinion, mm -hmm. um, and by just standardizing that. Um, I think at the same time, you could also argue that it's, it's, inhibited some of the emerging technologies that could have been right. in government already. Um, so right. I'm, I'm curious to know where you fall on that and what you've seen over the years, um, the, the good and the bad. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't have a really good, solid response to that. And, you know, you know, I've been through this twice, right? And a couple mm -hmm. of companies and working through the process and it's, you know, become a necessary evil, so to speak. Um, and, you know, I, it's just one of the things I think that we have to to deal with uh, in in this environment to to make sure that what we are providing is secure um, and you know follows the standards that are out there. Uh, and you know, it is it takes time, but you know this this is not a new concept for if you've been a federal contractor for twenty plus years like myself. There's always been some kind of standard accreditation. Yeah. Uh, things that we've had to follow. And because now that we're in this new world of being in cloud, this is, you know, just another one of those kind of things that we need to follow and work our way through. I don't have any great insights to offer you. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe in time I will. Um, but right now I'm just working through the process. I think one of the things that, that I do like about it that I, I think it's sometimes overshadowed is that, uh, again, for good or for bad, one of the things that that I know you know well and, and a lot of people know is if you're going to do business with government, you mm -hmm. have to be all in. You can't dabble. That's and, right. And I think a program like FedRAMP really allows a company to show its intentions and its investment in the government space. And it, it, it's really just become now, it, it's obviously a marketplace for secure providers, but it's become a marketplace of people who take government seriously. Exactly. And talk government language and understand um, understand how the business of government is done, and I think that mm -hmm. is important. We've created that ecosystem where um, where government can really truly um, be a little bit more transparent with a community of people that want to invest and want to uh, allow that transformation to happen. Mm -hmm. And and I and you know what, I, if if you've been in this business long enough, 
you know, you understand that, right? Uh, if you're new to government contracting or a new software company, this might seem, you know, uh, complicated and unnecessary and, and, and all of those kinds of things. But if you've been in this business long enough, you, you understand why this is necessary and why this is good for, uh, for the government moving forward in order to have these things. So, so one of the things I'm curious to get your take on, I found that one of the ways that, especially as we take a look at public-private partnerships, one of the ways the private sector can really help government is to understand what they should be looking for and understand what they should be prioritizing, right? You have mm -hmm. so many technologies out there now. It's one of the reasons why uh, your technology is so important. It allows for them to make those decisions, but when, then you open up that entire aperture into all these decisions, right? So what are some of the things that agencies should be looking for as they're prioritizing vendors? Certainly um, organizations and companies that, uh, for one, are are stable um, and have the the type of either product or service offerings that will remain in place, so to speak. Um, and this is not a company that you know just formed yesterday and, and now wants to sell to the federal government. I think there is a a component of stability. Um, that's certainly needed. Um, and, and certainly if I was a government buyer, that is something that I would definitely be looking at. I would also be looking at organizations and companies that reinvest uh, back into their uh, company in terms of their offerings and their people um, and taking a look at their level of service, right? Their, the services that they provide and the customer service that they're providing. Um, you know, everybody wants a long-term happy customer. I certainly would, if I was a government person, I would be looking at uh, those organizations that, that do that and that are fully supportive of their government customers. What do, what do you guys do when, you, when you're working with vendors to help educate them? Obviously, um, obviously on the sales side and the marketing side, what are some of the things that you found have been really valuable in enabling the, the government buyers to understand um, what's out there and, mm -hmm. and how you guys can really answer the call? Yeah, you know, and, and um, pre-pandemic, it would be, you know, running workshops with our government customers, meeting face-to-face, -face, mm -hmm. uh, doing some uh, either some sort of agile type exercise or uh, a user experience type exercise itself. Um, well, so we do a variety of things, right? Because of the pandemic now, we're, we're having to figure out ways to engage with our customers um, digitally, either through uh, webinars or interactive sessions. We're looking at new technologies uh, to help uh, educate our customers with like micro bursts of information. I like to call it like, you know, it's like the TikTok version of <laughs> getting information because no one wants to sit through, you know, a 60 minute or a 90 minute demonstration anymore. So get these like micro bursts of information and innovation and messaging out there to help with that engagement and to help move our customers along. Uh, Claire, I got to say, you might be my first guest to use TikTok. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. No, you're absolutely it's right. True. I think that's such a good point. I, and I, right. I, I haven't heard anybody call it microburst, but I think that's a really, a really right. good description of it. And, and it's how we like to consume information in our personal lives. Why wouldn't right. we want to consume it that way professionally? Thank you so much for saying that. Yes, because, you know, so often I get these links where, oh, take this, you know, one hour class. And I think to myself, I don't have time for this. 
Okay, but I might have, you know, five minutes here and five minutes there. Uh, and being able to do that and give and chunk up that those messaging and that training and that and, and whatever type of client engagement we want to utilize is excellent and an excellent way to keep your clients engaged. So uh, another thing when we talk about influencing, uh, we, are t- we are talking about kind of the enablement and trying to educate agencies and, and what they should be prioritizing. But over the course of your career, how have you taken the approach around influencing potentially policymakers? And when you do that, what are some of the things that they should be doing to promote IT modernization? In the past, most of my legislative influencing has been rather grassroots, right? Uh, because I've I've been a biz, small business owner. I've been part of organizations that have already had a, a legislative affairs department. So whatever th- things that I've done in the past has been mostly a grassroots kind of an effort. How important is it to be able to influence these these uh, policymakers? I think there's some companies out there that that might be listening that don't have a group that tries to influence on that level. Mm-hmm. I think when you play in this space, I, it becomes something that that is important in my opinion, mm-hmm. but it can be done a number of ways, mm-hmm. right? You, you can have a, a lobbying group within your organization, but you could also be working with co- or groups like uh, like Alliance for Digital, uh, Digital Innovation, um, right. like ADI. You can do it through those type of groups as well in a more almost like a con- consortium type mm-hmm. of approach. But in terms of uh, level of importance, what are your thoughts there? Well, I do certainly think that that's all important, doing that kind of uh, you know, involvement either through um, you know, one of the many organizations that are out there, ACT, IACT, AVSIA. Yes. Uh, all of that is uh, very, very necessary uh, for, for this space. And there's a certain amount of influence that does happen through that. It's not as formal as working through, for example, a legislative affairs group or, or things like that. Um, but uh, anyone that wants to do business with the federal government needs to be involved um, in these organizations. You know, years ago, um, I was running a public company and I was involved in something called the DHS Business Council. Right. And, uh, you know, at first I was like, oh, here's another one of these meetings that I have to go to. But what what ended up happening was it was a set of about 12 CEOs in this area and we all got together and we started working on white papers and positioning statements um, to be utilized by folks within DHS to, ha- to help guide them on some of these uh, programs and these technology initiatives. We weren't pitching our companies per se, but what we were doing is help bringing them along of what was actually happening in, in the digital, in the technology field. Um, and so I think that's a very, very big part of uh, our jobs, especially in this area. Um, and certainly on the legislative piece of it, you know, knowing what's happening legislatively, I call it, uh, it's one of my strategic initiatives here in my group is I call it being legislatively aware, right? I want everyone within my organization to understand what's going on on Capitol Hill, how, uh, what policies are being made, how it's impacting our federal agencies, and then how it's impacting their customers, the U.S. citizens. I think that's incredibly important. And, and to me, one of the things that this influence supports is it creates a pathway for 
some of this innovation to happen. And oftentimes, sometimes lobbying gets a a bad, a a bad (laughs) stigma. Um, Mm -hmm. But really, I think there's legislators that need that because they can't keep up with all the different types of technology and the different implications that the technology might might have or ha- or not have. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important again for the private sector to be part of the process beyond just a selling motion. I um, totally agree. That they need to be in there, they need to be able to provide that value, provide that education. But there's ways to do that. You can't just walk up to somebody's door and knock and say, "Hey, I want to talk to you for an hour." But there's groups that have that access and I think that's the value that they can bring for your organization. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And and they can also help educate a government contractor on the process, Correct. right? And of how all of that is done. Um, and and knowing that process, knowing the legislative process and how how things are funded and and how those initiatives start, um, I think is very, very valuable uh, and certainly should be a part of every organization's DNA. So before I give you some some time to to give final thoughts uh, on some of the things we've talked about today, I want to ask you one last question, and this is about advice that you have for young women in the technology space. I think we've over the past few years we've been having conversations around diversity and inclusion, um, making sure that there's equitable access to to different things, especially when we talk about technology. But I think one of the conversations that isn't always had is um, how can we support, uh, obviously, STEM roles and especially women in STEM roles uh, in the technology space? So what advice would you have um, for folks in this in this position? You're asking the right person. All right, let's start there. So this is a, you know, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart simply because, one, I'm female. Two, I've worked in technology my entire career. And three, I've worked in in the federal contracting and in, in, in the public sector my entire career, and I've been a business owner and, and, and working in that environment. Um, so lots of things to discuss here. And advice to give to, to young women coming in um, certainly is, you know, getting getting an, a mentor early on, right? And, get, and making sure that you have a mentor. The mentor does not necessarily have to be another woman, uh, but certainly surrounding yourself with uh, mentors and and understanding how to advocate for yourself. And I don't think a lot of people, male or female, understand how to do that well uh, and, how to, and how to do that in a, in a way, in an organization that um, does not alienate yourself uh, from everyone else. I think that's a very important piece of it. Um, for me personally, you know, uh, it's, it hasn't always been easy. Being a woman leader in technology as and especially in, in the public sector, has not always been, uh, you know, a, a walk in the garden. But you know what, Brian? I, I don't know if you've noticed, but the landscape has dramatically changed for women in public sector over, I would say, the past five to eight years, where you see women CEOs of large defense contracting firms. That's amazing. Now, I would have never expected that 20 years ago. 20 years ago, there was no way that I saw that coming uh, simply because of the way things worked uh, back then. Um, so to me, uh, what, what I'm seeing now is, um, is, the, is certainly the light at the end of the tunnel um, and certainly the, the, the talent of women that are coming up through some of these companies is amazing. I think, I mean, 
the advice to to get a mentor, I think, is is a really really good piece of advice. And I would say, I mean, whether you're male or female, that's probably something that you should do anyway. I mean, being in being in the technology space, let alone the government technology space, is always it, it can be always be a challenge. So as you're getting in, understanding how to navigate that is so important. Mm-hmm. I had a, a, another uh, another female leader that was on here, and I posed the same question and her answer I thought was great. It was don't wait for somebody to pull a seat up to the table for you. Oh no. Bring your chair and pull right up. And you know what? (laughs) Be part of the conversation. And I think, I think that was so to me, that was so right. Cause I know I don't wait and Mm -hmm. and you shouldn't wait either. I I, don't be timid. And, and I I think that was something that, um, that really struck me obviously, cause I remembered it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so funny, Brian. Uh, I actually had someone tell me this uh, the other day that uh, it was a he. Um, and uh, his boss said to him, you may control your own narrative, but you don't get to control your own timeline. And I, I it kind of got, got me a little bit of a step back. And I thought, you know, how many times perhaps has uh, um, uh, a young woman have heard that in her career? And understanding that that's not true, that you mm-hmm. are in control of that. You are in control of your narrative. You are in control of your timeline. And you don't have to wait to, for an invitation that you can make that kind of progress uh, for yourself and your career. Uh, but you've got to be very proactive about it. I had a soccer coach growing up, and I'll always remember this, the, the phrase he used to always use in, in, a, in a micro situation or a macro situation is impose your will. Impo- and oh, I love that. Im- you should you need to impo- impose your will on the other person. And that, that was the idea. And obviously the sport, the, the sport can be one-on-one sometimes when you, when you pull it back into a situation professionally, you should be able to impose your will and dictate kind of, again, what your narrative is, but you can control the timeline. I, I love that you said that because you're right. It, it's it, that statement isn't true. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, mm-hmm. such, I- what's such great <clears throat> advice. Thank you. I could go on for a half an hour on this topic, but that that's another podcast. <laughs> we'll have to have you on again then, I think. Okay. Um, Clara, what what final thoughts do you have to leave the audience? I think we we touched on so many different things. I, I really appreciate you being on to to give some of your experience, especially in a situation like we've been in for the past couple of years. I think it, mm-hmm. it it's really can help provide some foundational elements to folks out there that are struggling. But what are some final thoughts that you have as we wrap the show up today? Well, you know, Brian, but uh, <clears throat> no doubt the past couple of years have been difficult for everyone, right? On, on so many levels, right? Uh, and just from my own uh, kids' education, you know, sometimes if, if I try not to think about it too much, you know, because sometimes it does get me a little nervous when I think about, you know, them, them being going to school virtually for the past two years or so. Um, <clears throat> I think you know, given what's happened in the past two years, it's been almost sort of a great awakening of the in the technology inequality, certainly within our country. Um, but it's been a great awakening and accelerator for our federal agencies of what they need to do to modernize and how they need to meet the needs of the U.S. citizens. And for us as government contractors, this there has been no better time, I would say, in the past 10 years or more where we can now really help accelerate our federal agencies and help them move forward. So to me, this is, you know, this is uh, a point in my career where I would say is, you know, a highlight of what is happening right now. 
and where we're going. You're right. I mean, we're we're kind of at a tipping point. I think you're absolutely right. We didn't even touch on it today, but what better time is there to to work in the government technology space than today? I think it, government's finally understanding some of the things that they potentially haven't understood for decades, and private sector organizations are finally aligned to be ready and equipped to be able to support that evolution. And I'm, I, I know I love working in this space. I, I love coming to work every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right. I think we're, we're at a, at a tipping point and it's, it's such a great time. I would, I would totally, and it's, and it's the same way in our state and local as well. You, mm-hmm. When you think about all of the, the, the funding that's going, uh, to state and local and what needs to be done there to modernize some of these, uh, state agencies as well. Again, it's that great renaissance that is happening uh, throughout public sector right now. It's very, very exciting time to be here. Claire, thanks so much for being on the show today and, and for, again, bringing some of this experience um, to bear. It's, uh, it's been a delight to have this conversation with you, and I'm sure my listeners would agree. Thank you. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by he- heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast or wherever you access your podcasts. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.